Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Joanne Lippman. Joanne is a journalist and editor who has worked for, among others, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, and Condé Nast. Her new book, That's What She Said, dives into today's workplace. Through a combination of factors, women have a harder time succeeding and achieving their maximum potential in their careers as men do. Most of us already know this, but how do we fix this? Joanne argues that women alone can't fix these issues, men and women need to work together on viable solutions. Drawing on research, her own work experience, and people she's met around the world, Joanne provides a roadmap for how we can achieve a more equitable workplace for everyone. All right, so on the phone with us right now, we have Joanne Lippman, author of That's What She Said, and thanks for joining us today, Joanne. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Of course. Uh, So obviously there's a lot to talk about with this book, highly relevant, Um, but to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about your work background and how you were able to bring that to the book. Sure, sure. So I'm a longtime journalist and editor, most recently editor-in-chief of USA Today and the USA Today Network, which has USA Today as a flagship and includes 109 local newspapers, about 3,000 journalists. And before that, um, I spent 22 years at the Wall Street Journal, and I ran a magazine for Condé Nast. So, you know, for so much of my career, uh, particularly at the beginning of my career at the Journal, Um, You know, I was in an environment where we were writing about men. Most of my colleagues were men. All of my mentors were men. Um, And so, you know, I I grew up in a world where I'm surrounded by men who are really good guys, um, who really would love to see sort of a a more equal world. And at the same time, um, you know, you've got women who talk amongst ourselves about the issues that we face at work all the time. Um, you know, issues like being overlooked and marginalized and our ideas not being heard and, you know, the lack of respect. And we talk amongst ourselves, but we haven't been talking to men. And so as a result, you've got, you know, women um, at most can solve 50% of the problem because it's only 50% of a conversation. And I really felt very strongly that we need to bring men into this conversation. And in my professional experience, there's a lot of good guys out there who would like to join this conversation and be part of it and be part of the solution. So you were just mentioning that um, you've known lots of good men that you've worked with. You talk in the book in the very beginning about how men aren't the enemy. There will be no man bashing in the book. Do you think that all these men are still somehow complicit in the way women are treated in the workplace? Yeah, I think that a lot of men just don't understand what the issues are that women face. And in fact, there was some very interesting research done by Catalyst, which is a nonprofit um, that looks at women at work. And they asked men, they surveyed men, um, and they said, what might stand in the way of you championing equality at work? And 51% of them said, lack of awareness of exactly what those issues are. And 74% of them, really an overwhelming majority of them, cited fear. And the fear is, you know, part of it is fear of saying the wrong thing. And part of it, frankly, is the fear of lack of 
status, of, of a decline in status among other men, right? It's seen as, um, you know, giving up your power, right? There, there really is such a strong power dynamic here. Um, and so part of what I'm hoping to do with that's what she said is, first of all, let's take away the fear factor, right? Let's make this discussable among men and women. Let's let men know what the issues are that we're facing, and then let's move on to solutions. Let's talk about what are some tactics and strategies that we can use that actually will close the gap. And to do that, I, I traveled across the country and the world seeking out um, uh, successful men, who primarily men, who actually were trying to reach across that gender divide. And I talked to them about their strategies, about you know what did they learn, perhaps things that went wrong, things that they learned. And, and I talked to men from companies ranging from Google, which is an overwhelmingly male um, company that's had a lot of issues um, with gender, uh, to companies like consumer products companies like Kimberly Clark, um, to Harvard Business School, where they're actually trying to build this into the curriculum to get the students um, to become more gender blind. Um, and, and then I took away from that, you know, what are some strategies that men as well as women uh, can use to help close the divide? Mm -hmm. So what are some of these most basic challenges that women face at work every day that men just aren't aware of? So there are a number of them. For example, women are interrupted three times more frequently than men. So if you look at um, even the Supreme Court, there was a study done by Northwestern of Supreme Court justices, and female Supreme Court justices are interrupted three times more frequently than male Supreme Court justices, right? So um, that's the kind of thing where once you become aware of it, once you see it, you can't unsee it. So I spoke to several men who, you know, once they became aware of it, put um, programs in place to stop it. I mean, there's a, a, a screenwriter I spoke with um, who told me that, you know, in a writer's room, in a television writer's room, he said women's ideas were not getting through. And so what he did is he created a rule, no interruptions. If any writer in the writer's room is pitching an idea, you cannot interrupt them until they are done. And he, it's for men or women. And he said, no, no, after that, it's fair game. You can tear them apart. You can make them cry. I don't care. But you have to let them finish. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one other, um, women are, uh, this is interesting, women who actually just talk about, you know, tell you what their qualifications are or who point with pride to something that they have successfully achieved are um, punished for it. Um, they, they are considered boastful, brash, unlikable, abrasive, which is a, a word often used for women. Um, whereas men who do exactly the same thing, they could read from exactly the same script, and men um, are, are heralded for it, right? This is considered a, a point in their favor. They're, they're more liked. So there are strategies to get around that as well. Um, you know, one of them is... Um, for um, men or women can do this. This, this is something that um, at a consulting firm, one of the women there told me that they have a, a system they put in place called Brag Buddies, which is, um, in, in her case, the women do it. The women trade, you know, I tell you my achievements, you tell me yours, and then we go out and boast about the other. Um, another strategy that um, has been uh, very successful for a lot of people is amplification. And that is, and a lot of men can do this, right, which is women's ideas very often are not heard until 
there's, they represent more than a third of the people in the room, which in business, unfortunately, is not that frequent, right? So very often women's ideas just, there's just crickets, right? And so what, I'm, what men can do or simpatico women can do is, um, you know, Susan has an idea. Um, I hear that idea. I repeat it. I say, hey, Susan, what a great idea. And then I repeat her idea. And that does two things. One is it makes sure that Susan's idea is heard by the group and not ignored. And second, it makes sure that she gets credit for it because any woman will tell you, everyone has experienced that situation where a woman, you say something, you think it's kind of a good idea, you don't hear, you know, nobody pays any attention to it. And then two minutes later, Bob repeats the idea and suddenly Bob's a genius, right? And everybody gives credit to Bob. So this amplification, what it does is make sure that Susan gets the idea, gets the credit for her idea in the first place. Mm-hmm. These different challenges that women face in the workplace, um, you talk a lot in the book about unconscious bias and how this is the basis of a lot of these challenges. Do you think it's all unconscious bias? Is there some active sexism at play here or is it kind of a mix? It's a mix, definitely. I mean, there's a there's quite a bit among perfectly good guys, right? Mm-hmm. We all have unconscious bias. And but by the way, women have unconscious bias as well. Um, and so a lot of what we see within the culture is unconscious bias in that people have these prejudices that are buried so deep inside they really don't even realize they have them. Um, One of the things I talk about in the book is I actually took, there's an implicit bias test that you can take, and Mm -hmm. I took it, and I came out as moderately biased against working women. The key with unconscious bias is once you're aware of it, it, you can't, unfortunately, you actually cannot wipe out your own unconscious bias, but what you can do is once you're aware of it, you can take steps to counteract it, right? Um, but there still is a level of overt sexism, uh, particularly in industries like technology and finance. We've spent a lot of time with both of those industries. And, you know, it's unfortunately, it's been endemic. Um, the fact that, um, you know, sexual harassment claims within a workplace are very often done um, very quietly. They're settlements and they're, they're anonymous. It keeps it from um, keeps us from actually coming up with a solution, because very often what happens is um, the man who is you know the, the 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 perpetrator is protected because there's a settlement paid and it's confidential, so no one knows. Um, and even if he has been chastened or or warned at work, nobody knows it because it's it's anonymous. And then the woman very often is the one who ends up quitting, leaving, getting moved to a different department. Um, and it hurts her career. My hope is, and particularly with this Me Too movement, my hope is if we can um, destigmatize um, these issues so that not everything is cloaked in anonymity, then once we shed some sunlight on it, we will actually see what the issues are and, and uh, you know, who are the, the perpetrators and make sure that we actually can have a more fair environment. Um, that goes, by the way, for all of the issues we address in the book, including pay and promotions. Um, really interesting, I talked to PwC in, in the United Kingdom, in the UK, there's a rule um, that's a ver- brand new rule that companies have to do a gender gap um, pay analysis to see what's the difference between um, the, the pay levels for men and women. And before the rule went into effect, <clears throat> PwC decided it was going to make those figures public before it had to. 
the interesting thing is when I spoke to them is they said, you know, we know we knew what these numbers were internally. We knew that men were getting promoted at a better, faster rate than women. Um, but they said when we had to say it out loud publicly, it was a highly motivating factor. We suddenly were like it, way more motivated to do something about it to close the gap. Mm-hmm. So um, you had mentioned that there are some steps you can take to counter unconscious bias. So what are some of these concrete things that anyone can do right now today in their workplace to just kind of check that bias? We mentioned a few, you know, amplification Mm -hmm. is a great one where you amplify the idea of a woman um, and give her credit for it. Um, You know, the idea the no interruptions rule is a good one. Um, another one that um, I spoke with some men about who they do is, is they sort of make a, make, a, make a pact. You know, there's a reaching out to women. Um, I was talking um, to a former Pepsi executive the other day who said that he learned uh, from women in, in some of the meetings he was in that they felt like their ideas um, weren't being heard, and he said he, he made a pact with them where he was listening for it, and he would then interrupt and call out um, the man who was who, who we would say was appropriating, as in taking her idea, or man-interrupting, as in mm-hmm. interrupting her. Um, you know, there's other things. The, the real bottom line, by the way, is understanding that this is not just about a social issue. This is, you know, it would be nice if we wanted to fix this because it's the right thing to do, which it is. But the mm-hmm. men who I spoke to uniformly said the reason they did this, the reason they reached out to try and have a more equitable workplace is because it's a business imperative, right? Women, the research shows you that um, by every measure, having more women in leadership helps, you know, return on equity. It makes your company more financially successful. Companies that have women who are running the the finances, CFOs, they make um, better decisions. They make better investment decisions. Uh, Banks that are run by women are less likely to fail when things get bad. Interestingly enough, diverse groups, when you add women to a mixed group, it even um, makes you more creative you come up with more creative solutions. And at a time like this, when every industry is going through really dramatic transformation, we are really at a moment, transformational moment, for, and companies of every industry are trying to figure this out. Having these diverse groups has never been more important because you need more creative solutions than ever before. And to do that, you really need to have women. You need to have a mixed group. And mm-hmm. by the, that goes also for mixes of ethnicity and ages. You need different viewpoints to make yourself more successful. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this, um, especially in the book, comes down to uh, the way that men and women are raised from childhood, how, you know, when men are very macho, they show leadership, they're rewarded. When women are ambitious, you know, speak out for themselves, they're punished for it. Um, so a lot of that kind of develops into the workplace today. And men are generally more assertive. Do you think that to sort of balance things out, women should be more assertive at work or should men be less assertive? Well, it's it's more about an understanding of how we communicate because mm-hmm. we do communicate in different ways. Women are highly aware of different speech patterns that make us seem weak. For example, women are much more likely to use that up speak, um, which sounds like a question, but it's really not a question. It's really a statement. It's, you know, like um, you're in the car and the woman says, shouldn't this be a left turn, not a right turn? (laughs) Where what she means is you're going in the wrong direction. (laughs) Turn. Um, 
and and uh, men misinterpret that. And uh, you know, there women apologize all the time when we're not sorry. We apologize for everything. Um, and so so part of it is training our ear uh, so that we understand. Um, that the woman with the upspeak is not asking you a question, that she, when she apologizes, she is actually not sorry. Um, part of it is women being aware of that um, as well. Um, and really, it is just an understanding, a better understanding of, of the communication styles of, of different people. Mm-hmm. Early on in the book, you talk about how when you were graduating college, you and all of your female friends felt you had this potential, you know, this was your moment for gender equality, you were going to go out in the workforce, everything was going to be equal. Um, but then you you found as the years went by that not all of your female friends were able to ascend to leadership positions in that way. Um, what would you recommend for students who are in college now to do to sort of keep that momentum going into their careers for men and for women? Right. So, you know, like I said, awareness is so important to any one of these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a McKinsey lean-in study that found that at every level, women are 15% less likely to be promoted than men. Um, and there was another study that looked at what happens if you, um, there was a computer model, and it started out with 50-50 women-men um, at the entry level, and it, it, um, it uh, programmed in a 1% bias against women. By the time you get to the top of that organization, it's 65% male with just a tiny little bias against women. So, again, the awareness is key so that we can counteract it. Um, for women, I think it's incredibly important to arm themselves with information. Women are far less likely to negotiate for a first salary. Uh, when we do ask for a raise, we generally ask for 30% less than what men ask for. Um, we don't put our hands up for promotions. So the, the um, you know, part of this is um, uh, something that women just have to arm themselves with this information so that they can sort of act against it. And part of it is for um, managers. Um, and as these women move up into management, um, to be highly aware of those things. I mean, I actually changed the way that I manage in the course of researching this book. One of the things that I found out was that it's not enough to have, you know, most of us know that if you're hiring for an opening, it's important that you have a diverse slate of candidates, right? Different, you know, men, women, different ethnicities, and, you know, even that, right? So that's important. But what I learned is that that is not enough and that if you, you need as well a diverse slate of interviewers because if you have men, women, different ages, ethnicities uh, in your applicant pool but everybody who's doing the hiring is a white guy, you're still not going to come up with the optimal result. So again, it's both on the, on the part of the, um, the, the women, the women who are coming up in the workplace and on the part of the managers um, and both, on both cases it's education and awareness. Mm. How many of these issues um, do you think are applicable to other minorities, uh, whether it be racial, sexual, et cetera? You know, I was just having this conversation with um, a professor at Princeton who's um, uh, very involved in African-American issues, and we were talking about this, saying the issues that um, we, that I wrote about in the book, so much of the research that I, um, that I cite in the book has been done on both in terms of gender and race because they are very, very equivalent. Both cases really are essentially about, in both cases, they are uh, essentially a threat to the, the power, right, of, you know, the, the power and privilege that are inherent with being a straight white man 
um, is threatened by the, um, you know, by by race, by gender, by anything that might threaten um, this power structure. So it's it's very 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 similar situations. And by the way, the other the other group that it also applies to that I found is I've heard a lot from introverted men who say that they face a lot of the same issues at work because they're not out there boasting about their um, their ideas. They, they tend not to speak in meetings as much, and they feel a lot of the same constraints that women do and that other underrepresented minorities do. Mm-hmm. What, about, um, what about people who are gender nonconforming? Um, how much of this would apply to them, people who don't necessarily identify as strictly male or female? Right. So the LGBTQ community, it's the same thing. I actually was on a panel uh, with a transgender woman. We were kind of comparing notes and uh, very, very similar sorts of issues. There's just, um, you know, when there is something that is seen as other in the workplace, it's still difficult to um, uh, to deal with. And I think Part of that is, you know, if you, you got to go all the way back to the, the modern workplace. Really, was created after World War II, in the image of the military. Right? It's hierarchical. It was heavily male. It depended on, um, you know, FaceTime. There, there were like a whole slew of characteristics of the workplace, and the makeup of the workforce has changed much more quickly than the workplace itself has changed. And so there's this push and pull um, that has been uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of people who don't fit the straight white guy mold. Mm-hmm. And when you say um, the workplace, generally throughout the book, you're talking about um, white collar corporate jobs. How much of this would apply to other types of work? It, this applies across the board to all types of work. So mm-hmm. if you look at, for example, um, waiters versus waitresses, um, waiters earn more than waitresses. If you look at in the medical um, sphere, if you look at nurses, male nurses who are a very small minority of all nurses, male nurses earn more than female nurses. Um, janitors earn more than the cleaning women. I mean, the, in the equivalent jobs across the spectrum, regardless of age or um, economic, socioeconomic status or education, you see this uh, divide between men and women at every single level. Um, at every level of education and, and socioeconomic stratus. Mm, all right. Well, we've got our work cut out for us. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> we uh, do, but that's why I wrote That's What She Said, and that's why the subtitle is what men need to know and women need to tell them about working together because women do talk a lot about these issues amongst ourselves, but we'll, the, the way we're going to solve this is to, to bring men in, not in a um, finger-wagging way, but to bring men in, in, an, in on equal footing with us to actually work together to close the gap. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, Joanne, so just one more question for you. And this is a question that we ask all of our guests. Since this podcast is primarily for teachers, um, educators, their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh my gosh, my first book was actually, it's called Strings Attached, and it was written about my favorite teacher. It was written about my music, my childhood music teacher, um, who was the toughest teacher on the planet. And um, it wasn't until many years later 
that I, I, I realized, and so did hundreds of students, generations worth of students, realized that um, he had actually changed all of our lives for the better and ha what a huge impact he had. So he was this incredibly tough, he taught me viola, he was an incredibly difficult music teacher and orchestra conductor. And, you know, he was this Ukrainian immigrant, and, you know, he would yell and scream, and he would say, you know, he'd stop the whole orchestra uh, when we were rehearsing, and he would say, who is idiot who played wrong note? <laughs> and he scared us to death. Um, but I will tell you that decades later, when I heard that this man had passed away, I felt compelled. I was so struck by it, and I felt compelled to go back for his, his memorial service um, to my hometown. And uh, not only that, I felt compelled. I had to. There, there was going to be a little concert by some of the alums playing at his memorial, and I said I have to be part of it, even though it had been 25 years since I played my viola. So I dug out my old viola, which was a mess, and <laughs> <laughs> practiced to try and like get back some 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 of that, um, remember some of the things. But anyway, I felt like I was this crazy person compelled to go back for this, and I went. I go back to this memorial. I walk in, there's going to be a little rehearsal before the memorial service for this group that's playing, and I walk in, and literally I see a hundred people, like former students, just like me. They have flown in from every corner of the country. They're not musicians. They're accountants and doctors and lawyers and professors. And like me, they felt like they had to be here to pay respects to this man. They all realized that he had changed our lives because beyond music, he had taught us things like focus and perseverance and picking yourself up when you fail and all of those things that I use and all of us use every single day in our lives we realized he had taught us all of those qualities and belatedly we came and when the curtain rose on that concert that day we were the size of the New York Philharmonic um, and it was an amazing tribute to an incredible teacher. Wow. I think I can say this is the first answer we've had where someone's written a book about their favorite teacher. So, <laughs> All right. Well, Joanne, this has been lovely. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.